someone the NSA once listed as the most dangerous hacker in America, sure don't look like much. He travels the world and scans the web to keep you up to date on the latest threats to the internet and to your cybersecurity. He brings you the latest on the fight against cyber terrorism, keeping you safe with the best cybersecurity information on the radio. It's Cybersecurity Today with John Bambanek. Good morning and welcome to Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host, John Bambanek. Broadcasting out of AM820 News covering Tampa Bay and the West Coast, as well as AM1060 News covering the Space Coast and Orlando. Uh, feel free to connect with us online at CybersecurityTodayRadio.com, on Facebook and Twitter at CyberSecRadio, my personal Twitter account at Bambanek, B-A-M-B-E-N-E-K, and via email at JohnBambanekRadio at gmail.com, J-O-H-N. B-A-M-B-E-N-E-K radio at gmail.com. We do take questions, things you want to hear on the air uh, of how to protect yourself, your business, or your family. So let's go ahead and start uh, with some of the big news of the week. Um, you know, we've been hearing a lot about North Korea lately and some of the geopolitical concerns uh, going on there, uh, some of the missile tests and the rhetoric back and forth between uh, Kim Jong-un uh, and President Trump. At the same time, a lot of that's going on. We've seen an uptick in attacks uh, that have been attributed to North Korea, cyber attacks rather, attributed to North Korea uh, specifically against our defense contractors. As many people know, uh, many of our military functions are outsourced to defense contractors, certainly making uh, weaponry and gear uh, for our troops. Uh, and North Korea has been targeting those uh, those entities uh, with kind of increased uh, intensity here in the past couple of weeks. Uh, this is kind of a very typical thing to see uh, when, uh, you know, geopolitical tensions rise uh, is that uh, either state-sponsored actors or those who are kind of patriotic uh, take it upon themselves to start targeting organizations. Uh, this one seems to be uh, more of the nation-sponsored uh, behavior. Uh, and certainly North Korea has a lot of information that they would like to, uh, to glean for us. But uh, a group that uh, is known as the Lazarus Group, uh, which has been attributed to uh, the North Korean government itself, has been sending a lot of spear phishing emails. And these are emails targeting specific individuals. Uh, you may know what phishing is, right? You know, it's these fake emails designed to get you to give your personal information. A spear phishing is when they target important people, heads of companies, uh, chief researchers, politicians, leaders. Uh, you're being targeted specifically, uh, and there's been a lot of attacks being uh, directed at, at very specific people uh, that have uh, access to sensitive information, right? You know, but certainly the thing to keep in mind, just like you're being targeted in your email, uh, you know, leaders of companies and in the military and politicians, so on and so forth, they're being targeted as well. At a very high level, the technique is the same. It is trying to trick you to give up information. It's trying to trick you to compromise yourself. Uh, it is very difficult. Uh, I won't let's say impossible, but very difficult to kind of reach out over the Internet and just start taking information and, and cracking firewalls like you see in the movies. Uh, often it involves relative, uh, relatively simple, uh, maybe well-crafted and, and, uh, and well-thought-out, but simple acts of deception. Um, uh, to get you to compromise yourself. So certainly, uh, you know, North Korea is not the only one. Uh, is another example here uh, in the past week is that 
uh, White House officials uh, have also been targeted for spear phishing attacks. Uh, shouldn't surprise anybody that our White House is uh, a target of not just other intelligence agencies, but activists and a variety of people uh, who would like to get information. Uh, one of the people who was targeted and, and successfully gave uh, or, or accidentally gave some some personal information, nothing overly catastrophic, uh, was the White House cybersecurity advisor, uh, Tom Bossert, right? The email in this case impersonated Jared Kushner, right? The, the son-in-law of President Trump uh, has some role in the White House, so sent an email. It looked like uh, Mr. Kushner uh, to Tom Bossert and others. Uh, they gave some information uh, as uh, uh, as a result, right? Uh, you know, in the media it reported that it was his personal address, uh, pretending that, uh, you know, there's going to be a, a little party, a get-together, and invited him out to it. So, you know, very relatively simple. All it involved was creating an email account that looked like Jared Kushner, uh, which is very easy to do, right? You can go to Gmail, uh, create an account. Uh, you may have to put numbers at the end of it or whatever, but you can say whoever you are, not just Gmail or Yahoo or Hotmail or whatever, all these free email service, you can put in your name. There's no verification of your identity, right? There's no verification that if you went and created an email account and said you are John Bambanek, no one's going to be asking for your driver's license. At best, they may send a text to your phone to verify that they can link a phone number to uh, that email address, uh, you know, but certainly there's email providers out there to not do that. And that doesn't apply to people who spend $10 to get their own domain name uh, and then start sending out email addresses. So be wary out there. Look for simple uh, evidence of deception, right? If you're emailing somebody all of the time, you know, their email address is going to be the same. You know, if you're emailing, you know, your your boss who uses a Gmail account, the next time you see an email coming from him, but it's from a Yahoo address, hey, something's up. Maybe take a, a second to verify that, that that's really him through another means, phone call, something of that sort. Because at the end of the day, right, you know, we try to find these things. We try to be proactive about it. Uh, but a lot of these problems are very fundamental to how the Internet works. There is no good way to verify the person behind the keyboard is who they say they are. And this plays out in a wide variety of ways. Email is especially one of them. Uh, if you just tuned in, you're listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host, John Bambanek. The last story uh, I wanted to cover, something from our digital partner, CyberScoop. Uh, I know we've mentioned on the show that uh, the talent shortage, the hard time we're having getting people to fill cybersecurity jobs. That's true in government, and that has been especially true uh, for the incoming White House, is that they're having a hard time attracting uh, cybersecurity talent to work in federal jobs. Uh, and, uh, you know, there's a story that they had out there that the acting federal chief information security officer uh, also uh, has a role in the National Security Council staff. Uh, doing cybersecurity work as well. So usually those roles are head by two people. Uh, one person is filling in both roles, and it's being attributed to uh, a lack of, of people out there and a lack of willingness of the people out there uh, to take jobs uh, with the Trump administration. Now, there's a wide variety of reasons for that. Uh, IT professionals tend to be more left of center than not. Certainly there's some Republicans out there, uh, you know, but certainly some of the controversy surrounding the president is not helping, uh, and 
understand some of the uh, the pushback at it. Uh, you know, people are uh, afraid to uh, be associated with that for for whatever particular reason, uh, and it's caused some real issues in terms of of our federal government, at least in cybersecurity leadership. Right? Um, you know, civil service jobs are they're people who have been working every day. They've worked for the last president. They'll work for the next one uh, as long as they're there. But getting really top tier talent to make sure that our federal government's secrets are secure. Um, you know, they have a lot of information about us citizens, our tax returns, uh, to an extent, health records now with the Affordable Care Act, certainly military secrets and out of our intelligence community and, and all the investigations that, that, has, uh, that has happened. But, you know, they're certainly facing a, a talent shortage as well. Uh, there's a lot of programs out there to try to help. I know that uh, uh, the National Science Foundation, I believe, has a uh, a college scholarship program called Scholarships for Service. You know, for a year uh, of tuition and a stipend, that's that's fairly generous for an undergrad. You agree to do a year of federal service. Uh, working uh, in a cybersecurity role uh, for the government. Uh, I know the university I have is a part of that. The University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign has a, a scholarship for service program. Others do too. So if you're thinking about getting into cybersecurity, uh, want to serve the public and your country, one good way to, to help fund uh, college, right, which is as we all know, not terribly expensive. Uh, look for uh, scholarship for service programs in community or computer science programs in whatever targeting universities uh, you or your children may be looking at. It may be a good way to help fund uh, that cybersecurity education for your child. Even if they spend a couple years, a few years in government, it's a great leg up out in the private industry. So we're going to take a short break right here, and we're going to go get right back into actually cybersecurity education here after the break. So stay tuned. You're listening to Cybersecurity. Security Today Radio with your host, John Bambinek, and we'll be right back after this. This is Cybersecurity Today with John Bambinek. This is Cybersecurity Today with John Bambanek. And welcome back. You're listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host, John Bambanek. Joining me now is Patrick O'Neill from our digital partner, cyberscoop.com. Uh, has some great story about uh, malware that's actually targeting North Korea uh, in the light of their current uh, missile program. So thank you for joining us, Patrick. Good to be here, John. So let's dive right into it. Uh, you know, what, what are you seeing about this malware campaign that's uh, going after North Korea? Is it about uh, is it about uh, their missile program, just uh, crime generally, or what? Uh, you know, what have you found out? Uh, so that's a good question. As North Korea's cyber activity is a lot more varied than I think people realize, but this specifically is uh, dealing, it seems, with the missile program and the recent missile tests, nuclear ICBM tests um, that they've been uh, holding and not just holding, but holding up for the entire world to see as part of rising tensions with the U.S. Mm -hmm. um, so the important dates to note are ju this is a July 3rd ICBM sure. test. And what they've been saying, talking about is ICBMs that can reach the U.S. Um, and so on July 4th is when a new malware campaign, um, well, so it's called Coney. And right. it's recently discovered, but it's a long-active family of remote-access Trojans with essentially 
the short version means that it can take over the uh, the computer uh, and give remote access to the attacker, right? Um, and so July 4th, which is one day uh, after the July 3rd test, obviously, mm-hmm. is when uh, this new campaign is launched. Um, and that's according to research sure. from Silence. The, the other part of this uh, little bit that Silence kind of connects the dots to another campaign going on uh, against North Korea. Um, and so there's this hacking group called Dark Hotel. They've been yep. active for a long time. Um, but there was something exceptional in a July campaign, again, following this missile test, in that it looked like it was targeting North Korea. Um, so this comes in the context of a lot of interesting news over the last year in terms of cyber activity, both targeting and coming out of North Korea. Um, we don't know if these two malware campaigns, how they're connected, if they're connected for sure. Um, it looks to, it looks to uh, the researchers there, there is some connection in terms of uh, files mm-hmm. that were found uh, used in both um, malicious malware droppers that were extremely similar. But as is the case with a lot of these uh, national security issues, a lot of questions remain unanswered. No, no, fair enough. And uh, I, that's kind of the interesting connection. You know, Dark Hotel is, uh, you know, the ones that take over hotel Wi-Fi networks and snoop traffic, correct? That is correct, right? For, and they've been active for mm-hmm. 10 years, it seems like. So it's it's always interesting when they're doing something new. And just, you know, people have been saying, so what's the attribution there on Dark Hotel? Um, I think, you know, the obvious guess um, that a lot of people make immediately is NSA. Uh, but I think that the more informed guess starts to look at Seoul and South Korea. Mm-hmm. Um, but they still remain guesses. There's no solid attribution there. No, that's, that's certainly interesting. But, you know, that never... Uh, well, I mean, espionage could be used for crime. It could be used for national security reasons. And certainly interesting people, depending on the hotel, uh, are checking in, doing things online. And, uh, you know, there's there's information that could be gathered there. Absolutely. I mean, hotels are, you know, at the risk of stating the obvious, you know, they're magnets for important people with important information. And you just talked about, you know, espionage being used for crime and intelligence. Well, North Korea is the poster child for using uh, cyber espionage for crime and for making money. You know, or uh, last year it was that they mm-hmm. stole almost $90 million uh, with a pretty unprecedented hacking campaign with swift banking. So, uh, yeah, North Korea exemplifies that point. No, so it's kind of ironic. They're now kind of on the business end of somebody who's who's going both ways with it. But, uh, yeah, no, that, yeah, it's last year. At least it was attributed to them, you know, stealing $90 million from the Central Bank of Bangladesh, I think, if it was correctly. So uh, the largest digital bank heist in history, I believe, uh, in terms yeah, of single uh, dollar amounts, right? Not not stealing a bunch like $1,000 from a million people, but uh, just basically raiding a country's bank account. The sad part is that their ambitions were much uh, greater. They were almost stole a billion dollars if it wasn't for a few rudimentary errors. So mm-hmm. uh, they'll they'll expect them to keep going on, and certainly financial institutions around the world are looking at Pyongyang and expecting more action out of that direction. No, no, definitely. I know a lot of people were very concerned about the SWIFT bank attacks that were stopped, in essence, because of small typos. So I think those just two characters that were just transliterated. Yep. Uh, so something kind of aired out, and somebody took a look and said, uh, "Holy crap, we got a problem here!" <laughs> <laughs> a big one, yeah, a billion-dollar problem.
Yeah, so yeah, small typos, you know, a, a small typo saved almost a billion dollars, but but definitely interesting times. So uh, kind of going back to this report, right, you know, the, that uh, the July campaign, right, the one that was targeting North Korea, uh, seemed to be targeting political figures instead of business uh, and doing kind of some social engineering there going after uh, in essence, politicians uh, in North Korea uh, insofar as, uh, well, there's political leaders everywhere, I suppose, just no matter what your regime form is. But, uh, you know, I, I found that one particularly interesting. That's right. And the, the other interesting part, I would say, is, you know, you said in North Korea, and I think also, uh, unless I'm mistaken, it's also outside of North Korea. And mm-hmm. one of the interesting reactions to this uh, report, you know, There's a public perception of North Korea as kind of this disconnected backwater, Um, and it's understandable why that's the perception, but a lot of that is just not true. They've been investing a lot of money in uh, being connected. It's still a despotic regime. It's still a brutal regime, but they're connected now both in the country and outside of the country. Um, They have operatives. Um, and and officials outside of the country that are using the Internet uh, to advance their mission. So it makes sense to target them abroad because that's where the North Koreans are working from. They're doing a lot of work from abroad. Oh, yeah, and they kind of have to for a variety of reasons, even their... Uh even their That's hacking right. groups are, you know, are operating out of hotels in, in China and Vietnam. Uh, I, I don't know much, if any. I'm, I'm sure there are, I guess, are people operating within North Korea, but uh, the groups we hear about uh, are usually not actually in North Korea. They're just acting uh, at the direction of North Korea from whatever hotel they happen to be staying at overseas. Yes, absolutely. I, I think it's fair to say that the lion's share of their cyber activity takes place um, around uh, chiefly East Asia, as you said, China, Vietnam, uh, Thailand is a big uh, hot point um, mm-hmm. because of historic relations there, um, which complicates both the politics of it, but it also complicates the cybersecurity side of it, right? Uh, makes attribution that much that much more interesting, um, but it's it's pretty well established at this point. So there's you know there's that usual variable in question about attribution, but this, this point about them operating abroad is is pretty widely accepted. No, definitely. So yeah, there's some very interesting information. Uh, if you're interested in in, in seeing this and uh, other great stories, uh, go ahead and go to cyberscoop.com uh, and uh, go ahead and check out what they've got going on. So thank you for joining us this week, Patrick. Thank you, as always. All right. Stay tuned. We're going to be taking a short break right here, but we'll be right back after this break. You're listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host, John Bamba. Scan your computer, but don't scan the dial. Stay right here. John Bambanek will be right back. Protect your computer. Run antivirus. Give me a systems display. Protect your data. It's all about the information. Protect your privacy. Privacy is a great concern to my customers. And welcome back. You're listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host, John Bambanek. 
So uh, previous segment, talking to Patrick O'Neill, Cyberscoop.com, our digital partner. Uh, they have some great cybersecurity news, but wanted to cover a different story as part of our privacy feature here. Uh, I know I come back to this often, that the amount of data you generate about yourself online and and just electronic data you generate going about your daily life is immense. And it would surprise you the amount of information that's collected. And I think this, uh, this story helps highlight that uh, a little bit. Uh, this past week, the Justice Department demanded uh, all of the visitors to a Trump resistance website uh, during the inauguration, uh, and ultimate, ultimately about 1.3 million people to a company called DreamHost. DreamHost is uh, an internet service provider, actually more of a, of a web hosting company, so they have websites, uh, host websites for people. So the Justice Department wanted... Uh, all visitors to this website, uh, you know, in a time window around Inauguration Day. Uh, you know, as many of you know, there are some incidents around Inauguration Day. I, I don't know anything particularly major uh, that I would uh, consider uh, significant, um, aside of typical protest and uh, occasionally some problems associated with that. Um, but the Justice Department, for whatever reason, opened an investigation. They're looking for something. And they asked this company, DreamHost, to say, we want all the visitors to this website and their IP addresses. Well, that turns out to be about 1.3 uh, million IP addresses that go to that. You know, they want contact information, email content, photos uh, uh, that were posted to the website, uh, all basically uh, involved in organizing protests to um, uh, of the inauguration of President Trump, right? But think about that for a second, right? You know, uh, you oppose the president, right? It's your right. You want to protest. That's your right. Somebody's organizing it. People are posting pictures, sending messages back and forth. Hey, can you give me a ride to D.C.? Or does anybody else have a place where I can I can crash? And instead of issuing a fairly targeted warrant or request for records, right? You know, I want to see these 10 people or, uh, you know, pictures posted from this IP address or something targeted. It's kind of a very big blanket thing. You know, I want everything in this window. Um, and, you know, your IP address is a very good way to, you know, certainly if you're the government, turn, uh, you know, a web request or an email message into an actual person, right? To say, hey, this person is the one who posted this picture or posted this message or visited the website uh, at this time. The immensity of that request, uh, obviously DreamHost is pushing back on it. That's what generated uh, the story, but it has some privacy concerns. There's one, I mean, Websites keep all this information as a matter of course. Almost every website has uh, what we call access logs, so IP addresses and some information about the web browser and what they requested. Right? You know, I could pull that up on our website uh, at cybersecuritytodayradio.com. Any website I manage, I can go see that, see who's who's viewing it, and people uh, look at that for analytics. Uh, see, hey, you know, who's linking to me? What's generating traffic? Whatever. But the government getting that right is potentially identifying, you know, the 1.3 million people associated with a protest uh, is is concerning to me. Right. Uh, you know, and I have my political ideology like anybody else, uh, but I don't like the con uh, the concept of the customer or uh, uh, the concept of the government creating big repositories of data saying, you know, these are the people who oppose the administration, who uh, opposed it enough to attend a protest or a resistance event uh, in their community or or to talk about it and networking these people. Uh, that certainly is concerning. I don't really know what their intent is. Uh, it just could be the warrant was 
or the request for records was just being lazy. We don't really know what we want, so give us everything. Uh, but, you know, there is a lot of privacy concerns there. Uh, so uh, things to keep in mind, um, you know, as you go about your day, visiting websites, you know, all this stuff can be tracked. It can be turned back to you. More than a few crimes have been solved with Google uh, search history, right? You know, things you type in, you know, if, uh, I know there was a murder here uh, where I'm from in Champaign, Illinois, uh, where where uh, a graduate student was tragically murdered. Uh, one of the reasons or one of the pieces of evidence they're looking at the person who's on trial now, uh, allegedly for committing it, you know, was this viewing history that talked about how to dispose bodies and how to stalk people and so on and so forth, right? So a lot of evidence is generated uh, about you each day. Um, and, and certainly, right, you know, you may have no criminality to hide. And I hope people People listening to the show are, are not about to commit murder. But the point is, is, you know, you, you may have information uh, you're concerned about, right? If you type in medical symptoms into Google to see what's on there, right? Now Google may uh, have these records that know, uh, have some insight into your health status, right? Um, there's nothing criminal about that, but you might not want everybody to know that you're, you have certain health problems. So a lot of information out there uh, to be concerned of. And uh, it, it's a very new character, uh, characteristic of, of society of all this information that's being generated, being stored, and thus can be retrieved as evidence after the fact. So uh, certainly uh, keep all that in mind. We'll follow the story as it develops. But these kind of debates come up, uh, you know, a few times a year uh, based on overbroad requests for data and such. Uh, you're listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host, John Bambanek. One other story I, I referenced earlier, did want to get into it. Uh, as we've mentioned, there's a huge cybersecurity talent shortage uh, here in the United States. Uh, but that's true in many other countries in the world. Uh, you know, they have their own companies that uh, need talent. They have a, a need to create software and technology and solutions. They need people to help investigate cybercrime and be involved in government. Uh, so a lot of needs out there. Uh, and one such country, China, uh, has uh, is really investing in it, and I think in an interesting way that, uh, you know, at least I found it interesting, is that they want to make four to six schools over the next decade. Uh, to train uh, and help meet the demand in their country uh, for cybersecurity experts. So creating these programs, I mean, not just a program at an existing university, but they want to create, you know, world-renowned centers uh, by 2027 uh, so that they have a strong talent base uh, to work with. I'm sure some measure of those uh, students will work for the government doing uh, cybersecurity-enabled espionage against whoever China decides to target for that, much like uh, the United that happens here in the United States. Uh, our intelligence community recruits from our cybersecurity programs as well. Uh, but there's a lot of uh, a lot of need out there uh, for professionals uh, across the world. So uh, China has a cyberspace administration organization uh, and working with their Ministry of Education want to roll out this nationwide project uh, to create um, you know uh, globally recognized stuff. Right? They they want to be known for it. They want to attract 
attract people, uh, not just their own uh, people, their own citizens, but people around the world uh, to collaborate, to do research, uh, because there's certainly a lot more problems than there are people to do them. Uh, these are jobs that can't be automated by robots uh, or artificial intelligence or any of the things you may hear uh, talked about in the popular media. So China is certainly tackling this problem. Uh, you know, we certainly have uh, similar programs in the United States, not to the scale uh, that China is talking about. But certainly it's on their mind to protect their infrastructure, to protect their citizens uh, and to uh, and to develop, you know, products and solutions that they can market both in China and abroad. So very big uh, growing industry. Uh, it's a very ambitious kind of plan. Like I said, we have things of this sort in the United States, but it's uh, will create programs in a couple of existing universities. They want to create, uh, you know, uh, huge centers for it. So, uh, and the reality is, is they've got about three times more, uh, three times as many people who connect to the internet as we do, if you think about it. So certainly a lot of need there. I'll be interested to see how that uh, plays out uh, as, as an academic. Every now and then I do collaborate with other researchers uh, on uh, cybersecurity projects. So it'll be interesting to see how that develops uh, over the next few years and decades uh, and to what extent they're successful bringing new people who wouldn't otherwise be involved in cybersecurity uh, into the industry. So we're going to take a short break here uh, and we're going to talk to Dick Morris, uh, author of the book Rogue State. Uh, he'll bring us some of his thoughts, some privacy concerns about what he's found. So stay tuned for that. You're listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host, John Bampin. This is Cybersecurity Today with John Bambanek. You're back with Bambanek on Cybersecurity. And welcome back. You're listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host, John Bambanek. Uh, joining me now, I have Dick Morris, author of a new book, uh, Rogue Spooks, The Intelligence War on Donald Trump. Uh, he's got a lot of other bestsellers out there. He's been a fixture in politics for a good long time uh, and wanted to have him uh, on, the, on the show here to talk about uh, uh, you know, what he's uncovered in his book. Uh, I know we've talked a lot about Russia hacking and the election-related uh, uh, incidents of the past year, so I thought he'd be a good person to have, uh, have on to discuss uh, his findings. Uh, thank you for joining us, Dick. Thank you, John. I appreciate you having me. All right. um, the thesis of my book is that there is a coup d'etat going on right now in the United States under our noses. There are no tanks rolling up Pennsylvania Avenue, but it is a coup nonetheless orchestrated by the intelligence community, the liberal media, and the special prosecutor. And uh, just to get background on this, when Obama, and, when Obama took over eight years ago, he decided it was very important to make sure that the CIA and the FBI would not turn on him. So he appointed Brennan, who was an ultra-liberal, to head the CIA and, uh, and, and Holder to head justice. And they immediately fired almost everybody they could get their hands on. Brennan, in fact, did a total reorganization of the agency mm -hmm. uh, with the goal of firing people. And uh, eventually, over half of the non-civil service employees were replaced. And um, that, so fast forward to May of 16, when Obama, when Obama realized that 
Trump would win the nomination. Mm-hmm. So he and Hillary spent 160000 uh, on uh, a on for, gave the money to Fusion, a negative research firm, to dig up dirt on Trump and, if possible, substantiate his collusion with, with sure. Putin. So they hired uh, Christopher Steele, a former British agent, to uh, flesh out a dossier that mm-hmm. itemized how this collusion happened. And the dossier was an absolute mm-hmm. load of garbage. Uh, everybody, anybody who looked at it could see that it was. It alleged that Michael Cohn, Trump's personal lawyer, was the negotiator in Prague orchestrating this collusion. And Cohn's passport showed he'd never been to Prague. Right. And uh, there were stories about hookers and peeing on beds and all that yeah, crap. Yeah, yeah. So nobody would publish the thing. And, uh, because, and after Election Day, they grew desperate because they saw that Trump won. And they determined to keep him out of office. So what they so they at that point they got a hold of McCain and gave McCain the dossier and he gave it to to Comey head of the FBI right and Comey knew a month or two before that there was nothing there because he'd gotten an early copy of the dossier tried mm-hmm. to verify it and couldn't and then offered Steele fifty thousand bucks uh, to verify it and come out with the rest of the information and uh, substantiate it and he couldn't do it. So when Comey got this document that everybody had turned their nose up at, but got it from a senator, he felt that that was pretext to give it to Obama. And time was running out. Obama had only 10 days left in his term. So uh, Obama and the uh, congressional leadership leaked it immediately. So the dossier was out there. But the problem is that nobody believed it still because it was so outlandish. So, uh, so... So the um, intelligence community uh, went to work leaking information uh, or Mm non-information, disinformation, to try to prove what was in the dossier. And um, specifically, they got a hold of all of these uh, operatives who were burrowed into the bureaucracy by Brennan and by uh, Holder. And they said, don't leave your desks, don't leave your job. They reclassified a thousand of them civil service employees so they couldn't be fired. Right. And then they played them like an orchestra of leaks to try to prove this collusion. The big one was on February 14th. The New York Times ran a lead story saying that the FBI had actually overheard tapes of Russian intel operatives speaking to Trump campaigners about how the collusion should work. Total fiction never happened. Four months later, right. Comey admitted that the tapes were false fabrications. Mm-hmm. And a whole series of leaks, most of them fabrications, emerged to try to prove this contention of collusion. Now, while that was going on, the coup operators worked to discredit and remove the people who could oppose them. And the major one was Michael Flynn, who was appointed national intelligence through National Security Advisor giving him jurisdiction over all intel agencies. And Flynn was a uh, no-nonsense guy and understood how the deep state worked, that, that they would try to oust Trump. And uh, they got, instead got Trump, uh, got um, uh, Flynn ousted by fabricating or by manipulating the conversation he had with the Russian ambassador, and it was totally phony charges. And at the same time, they got Sessions, the AG, sidelined to recuse himself entrapping him in a similar scheme. In the meantime, Comey went to the White House almost every week 
two weeks meeting with Trump. Mm-hmm. By contrast, when I worked for Clinton, uh, he saw Louis Free, the FBI director, twice in eight years. But Comey was in Trump's face, and he began by giving him the dossier and telling it to him. And Trump kept saying, I didn't do this, I wasn't involved in this, this is nonsense, this is BS. And, uh, get, and then told Comey, get on with what you were appointed to do, to head the FBI, to fight lone wolf terrorists, to break up cells in the U.S., to deal with drugs and opioids and that stuff. Mm-hmm. Get off the stuff. And Comey interpreted that as obstruction of justice, leaked the information, Trump fired him, and that led to a special prosecutor. Mueller then hired seven a bunch of hitmen is the only way to describe it mm-hmm. were very aggressive lawyers who were strong democrats uh, seven of them had contributed to hillary's or obama's campaign or the party one of them janet Reed, was hillary's personal attorney at the clinton foundation and one of them his number two guy named weissman was almost disbarred by the federal appellate court in the enron prosecution for prosecutorial misconduct. And these are the guys who Mueller hired. And what they're now doing is basically squeezing anybody that has ever involved with Trump to try to get them to incriminate him, either in the collusion or more likely in in an obstruction of justice. Mm -hmm. And of course, there's a narrow line between a president telling his employees what to do and obstructing their investigations. And uh, you can't just simply say, I'm gonna have nothing to do with anything related to criminal justice for the next eight years, I'm president. And um, it's that effort that is now being implemented to oust Trump from office. Oh, fair enough. So come into our under a segment. So I wanted to thank you, Dick Morris, for joining us. Uh, he is the author of Rogue Spooks, The Intelligence War on Donald Trump. You can find that on uh, Amazon or whatever your particular favorite online bookstore or uh, if you actually go into a store, uh, I'm sure you'll find it on the shelves. Thank you for joining us today, Dick. Good. Thank you. So I wanted to follow up that last interview there with Dick Morris, right? Yeah, you know, the there's a lot of stuff that you hear out here, and it's very easy to take conspiratorial-minded viewpoints of things. Are there people in the intelligence community with agendas? Sure. you know, But the intelligence community at large is a very huge organization. Uh, we certainly did see some inappropriate things with unmasking officials uh, and leaking transcripts of phone calls, and we still see some things of, of that sort today. Uh, you know, I think it's a little bit of stretch to call it a coup d'etat as much as it is uh, just trying to influence public opinion, which which happens all the time using very inappropriate tools. I might mind you. Right. But certainly uh, a lot of what happened uh, in terms of the cybersecurity angles of, of the last year and what we're still seeing artifacts today, Russia's influence operations, some things that Fusion GPS was doing uh, certainly uh, ring with us today uh, and highlight the amount of information that's out there in the public domain in electronic form that can be accessed by people. The sheer amount of information that you generate each day going to the grocery store and using your credit card, uh, going to whatever clothing store, using whatever loyalty card, uh, posting on Twitter and Facebook. You're generating a lot of information about yourself, more so than we've ever seen in human history, and we've not really accommodated a lot of the privacy implications of that. And we talked a little bit about privacy uh, in a couple of aspects 
on this show, but I always try to tell people, right, if you're really concerned about privacy, know who you're doing business with, know how they're using your information, and take charge of it because there's nobody out there who's going to protect your privacy uh, except for you, uh, except in the narrow case uh, of maybe the Federal Trade Commission of people not being honest about what they're doing. So coming to the end of our show here, if you want to catch us online, uh, visit us at CybersecurityTodayRadio.com, on Facebook and Twitter at CyberSecRadio, my personal Twitter account at Bambanek. Uh, to catch the podcast version of the show, just look up Cybersecurity Today Radio with any of your podcasting software. Uh, and as always, thank you to our affiliates, AM820 News covering Tampa Bay and the West Coast, as well as AM1060 News covering the Space Coast and Orlando. Until next week, this is Cybersecurity Today with your host, John Bambanek, and have a great rest of your weekend.